Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, long before the Spanish came to Florida in the 16th century, other people traveled great distances to interact with native Floridians. So we're getting all these really minerals, stone, and metals that are kind of coming into Florida. And what's going out at the time is probably going to be things like coastal things, things that are exotic to landlocked people in Alabama or Missouri. We'll discuss Ormond Hotel registries from the 1920s and 30s. It's essentially a handbook for the museum manager. Everything you want to know about the hotel is contained in these volumes. And we'll talk about the use of buckshot during the Seminole Indian War. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. So far away doesn't anybody Archaeological evidence demonstrates that people from as far away as what is now the American Midwest traded with the indigenous people of Florida centuries before European contact. It's possible that the ancient Maya from Central and South America also interacted with native Floridians long before the Spanish arrived in the 16th century. At the time of European contact, the native populations of Florida had complex societies, elaborate systems of trade, and their own ancient religions. About 1,000 years ago, agricultural communities were established in what would become the southeastern and midwestern United States, and what is called the Mississippian world flourished. Peninsular Florida is excluded from maps of the Mississippian world, primarily because corn was not grown here. Keith Ashley is coordinator of archaeological research at the University of North Florida. Mississippian world is a term that we as modern archaeologists kind of superimpose on the landscape of the southeastern United States and part of the midwestern United States. It really excludes Florida, at least peninsular Florida, it'll include the panhandle. It's kind of time transgressive, it can move, the boundaries can move, so it's not hard and fixed. But usually within what we call the Mississippian world are farming societies who are organized as chiefdom level uh, socio-political organization and they tend to be involved in these large-term exchange networks and uh, they're they're full-time farmers uh, they're growing large fields of maize uh, but we do see within the Mississippian world kind of pockets or areas where still hunters and gatherers persist so while we use the word Mississippian we use the word Mississippian world we really use it in a really general sense uh, broad brushed uh, because there is going to be diversity within the Mississippian world. In addition to growing maize or corn, the Mississippian cultures were known for their construction of platform mounds on which they would build houses, towns, temples, and burial buildings. The largest chiefdom of the Mississippian world was in a ceremonial complex at Cahokia across the Mississippi River from modern-day St. Louis. The 10th century AD kind of set the stage, I think, for rattling a radical turning point in southeastern prehistory. This is the time that you see the rise and the formation of this mega center that today we call Cahokia, which straddled really the Missouri and the Illinois side of the Mississippi River. It was the largest chiefdom ever in North America. 
then you see in its wake smaller chiefdoms occur throughout the Midwest and the southeastern United States. You start to see most groups at this time in the southeast or the Mississippian world kind of turning towards maize agriculture some more intensive than others, but we start to see that becoming really an important part of their domestic economy. And the other thing that you see at this point in time is you see that uh, long distance exchange networks, which had been for the previous few centuries kind of in a lull, are reanimated. And what you're gonna see is this really unprecedented flow of exotic materials across the landscape of the Southeast and the Midwest. Now this isn't the only time this happened. We do see large scale exchange going on uh, 2000 BC, uh, then again during the Hopewell Woodland period, but really the Mississippian period I think is, is really writ large, much larger than before, and we're going to see a lot of stuff moving across the landscape. And so Cahokia, which is the largest one, uh, really is early. It's surprising to people. It's the largest one, but it's from about 1050 AD maybe to 1150, 1200, and then it kind of breaks up or kind of uh, reorganizes and becomes much, much smaller than it had been. So during this early time when Cahokia is thriving, we see them basically having connections as far away as Florida, into Louisiana, then up into Wisconsin to the north. The St. John's culture of Northeast Florida roughly coincides with the Mississippian world. The St. John's period begins about 500 AD and continues until European contact 1,000 years later. Keith Ashley's research is demonstrating an extensive trade network between native Floridians and the thriving Mississippian culture. So we're getting all these really minerals, stone, and metals that are kind of coming into Florida. And what's going out at the time is probably going to be things like coastal things, things that are exotic to landlocked people in Alabama or Missouri. Shells, uh, whelk shells, busican shells, um, marginella shells, olive shells probably going to be things that are perishable, probably coastal uh, Florida bird feathers, uh, other types of things. A yopon holly, which they make the ceremonial black drink out of, uh, is from a, a holly tree that grows really in the coastal plain area. Uh, so you see things that are everyday here in Florida are exotic to people in the interior, and they kind of want those things. So we probably see a lot of exchange going on and alliance building over great distances. And some of these exotic materials like copper and these finely finished pieces of copper, like long-nosed god masks, are probably part of these alliance ceremonies between groups that are a great distance apart. Because Cahokia being in the St. Louis, Missouri, East St. Louis, Illinois area, they really want things that are a great distance away, coastal resources. So they're probably securing alliances with groups in Florida to kind of secure these things. Archaeology has proven that pre-Columbian people living in northeast Florida traded with the Mississippian world. The cross-gulf travel theory proposes the idea that the ancient Maya came to southwest Florida prior to European contact. Before retiring, Sandra Starr was senior researcher at the Smithsonian Institution National Museum of the American Indian. Starr has followed the oculate being from South America to Mexico and possibly to Florida. The images of this man that clearly show a connection all have these wide eyes. And no one argues that it means extrasensory perception, large uh, wisdom uh, being the window to the mind. He's one of the ways that you can follow uh, this man who is mostly always flying or attached to an agricultural sub-deity, let's call it that, like Tlaloc, who is the deity of rain in Mexico. He has very wide eyes that in that art history are called goggle eyes, uh, but the research is not connected to where I started with it. So that's what's fascinating. 
The Oculate Man image evolves over time and changes from place to place. He shows up as many different deities. Star has followed the symbols of the corn-based culture of the Maya and concluded that they embarked on a journey to find their god in Florida. When I got to the Yucatan and I realized another big kind of paradigm that had been going on, drought and pilgrimage. And where do you go on a pilgrimage? You go to the temple you have built, a pyramid-like thing in most cases, to uh, the deity of corn and maize in every case. And um, when you follow the pilgrimage lines and you also already understand that the deity uh, made a statement that he would return, and you were at the end of the road up there in the Yucatan, and the drought was killing you all, you would, if you were hypothesized yourself in the situation, you would want to find him. And he went off the coast of the Yucatan. And I do believe that the Maya had seen the Caribbean and were not afraid of the Gulf Current, especially on the fall equinox, when the loop is low that they, in desperation, may have taken what they needed. Uh, they'd have to have males and females, but I believe they were there before. The plausibility of the cross-gulf travel theory is supported by the fact that the ancient Maya were accomplished mariners known for constructing very large canoes. These were uh, sailing vessels that uh, could seat 25, they were uh, eight or nine feet across and heavy duty and had different bow and stern than other types of pointed canoes. I think because of their mathematical genius, their ability to have orientation from the stars, these were ideal mariners. When devastating droughts occurred in the Yucatan as early as the ninth century, Sandra Starr believes that the ancient Maya came to Florida and ended up around Lake Okeechobee. When you follow by hypothesizing that this, the drought may have driven people off the coast, either to go to places they were familiar with or to just follow Kukul Khan to wherever he went, you would bring something with you. They were big traders and merchants, so you would bring your gifts. And once I had read enough about what they might bring, I started looking for evidence that these are the, maybe the only things that were ever left in Florida. Um, and they became abstract uh, things like a caracara, uh, a crested caracara bird, uh, very important to the royalty that they would have carried that, uh, even feathers, of course, but uh, that bird, when you start to map where these birds are, I was astounded and thrilled to find out that there was a whole section in the center of Florida around Lake Okeechobee that there are uh, some of these crested caracaras. Uh, they don't fly much, they wouldn't have migrated, they usually chase people on the ground and chase animals. So how did they get there? Uh, then I also would bring the uh, honeybee, uh, stingless, uh, which are still being raised in uh, Cuba and Caribbean, um, because it goes directly with the maize. Uh, and I would have brought a maize to start new crops in a land that you must probably already know is limestone-based land. And that was why I saw the Gulf Current low in September, that if you just made the hook around, you'd be thrown off on the coast of Florida. And when I looked closer from satellite to the Caloosahatchee River, followed it in, I noticed uh, the, the uh, cornlands today, like LaBelle and around there, then went back to Jerry Melanish's book and read the chapter again 
written by William Sears, who always believed this and had found the corn pollen under microscope, which is more of a positive theory now than ever uh, that these were Mesoamerican-based ceremonial centers. Sandra Starr presented her research at the 2015 Florida Anthropological Society Conference and gave an updated presentation of her work for the 2017 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium. Not everyone has embraced Starr's ideas. The harshest critics have proclaimed that in the absence of definitive proof, the cross-gulf travel theory should not even be discussed publicly. Some go so far as to compare discussion of Starr's ideas to fanciful speculation about aliens building the pyramids in Egypt. Professional archaeologists such as Keith Ashley take a more moderate approach, recognizing that while more definitive evidence is required to proclaim the cross-gulf travel theory fact, the idea is still worthy of discussion and consideration. The topic of kind of trans-gulf, Maya, Mesoamerica, Central America, Florida uh, interaction has been, um, has been around for a long time. Uh, sometimes it's in favor, sometimes it goes out of favor. I think people are reconsidering it in the last few years because we're seeing so much evidence of people exchanging things and moving across the landscape more than we thought about in the past. So it's something that I think that, it, that is viable and it's very possible. I think we're gonna need the empirical evidence to show that, but the fact that we're seeing people in Florida doing exchange with groups that are in Missouri, that we're seeing people in the Southwest exchanging with people in Mexico, that groups really were, pre-Columbian groups really were um, contacting with others and exchanging things with others over great distances. And sometimes we've always thought maybe in the past that maybe all these are middlemen traders that have traded to one group who trades with another group who trades with another group and eventually gets a great distance by doing that. In some instances we may have evidence where groups are actually questing. Maybe they're going directly to those sources or to people near those sources or groups are sending emissaries great distance away to establish contact. So there's more direct diplomacy going on between groups that are a great distance away than, a, than instead of a series of interlocking or interlinking middlemen traders. Beginning in the 16th century, the Spanish and other Europeans would decimate the native populations of Florida with unknown diseases, slavery, war, and forced relocation. Prior to that, the indigenous populations of Florida had more cooperative interactions with cultures distinctly different from their own from very far away. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch the public television series Florida Frontiers, find great books on Florida history and culture, and find out how to subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Spread your tiny wings and fly away. Back with you where it came from on that day.
Snowbirds is a term used to describe people from harsh winter climates who come to Florida to escape the cold. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, many wealthy snowbirds would spend months at Florida hotels. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're looking at some historic documents from the Ormond Hotel. Yeah, that's right, Ben. And the Ormond Hotel uh, was, of course, in Ormond, Florida, in Volusia County. And it was originally constructed in uh, the late 1880s. It opened uh, its doors in January of 1888. And originally, the structure only had 75 rooms. It was more like a, a small country cottage. But two years later, after the current owners, unfortunately, took a loss on the building, two years later, Henry Flagler, the uh, famous Florida East Coast Railroad developer and, and owner of the Florida East Coast Hotel System, came through Ormond, brought his hotel that far south and purchased the building. And it's actually under the ownership of Flagler when the hotel really took on its uh, grandeur and became the Gilded Age centerpiece uh, hotel in Florida that most people knew throughout the 20th century. Uh, And it was actually when Henry Flagler bought the hotel, he expanded it from 75 rooms to 400 rooms, which included almost 11 miles of breezeways and corridors. Uh, He built his own power plant system, so they had electricity in the hotel, even in the early 20th century. They had uh, hot running water. They had pools, a golf course. It really was an incredible place and and became a playground for the wealthiest Americans and foreigners as well to visit uh, during the Gilded Age into the 20th century. Now you have here uh, two bound sets of records from the Ormond Hotel from the late 1920s and early 1930s. Yeah, that's right. We're looking at two leather-bound books. They measure about uh, 8.5 by 14 inches, and they're type transcripts of inventories, registries. It's essentially a handbook for the museum manager. Everything you want to know about the hotel is contained in these volumes. And like you pointed out, they they cover uh, particular years. So the first one we're looking at is winter seasons from 1928 and the winter season in, in 1929. And again, the types of information found in these volumes is just absolutely incredible. We have some lists of course, of visitors who came to the hotel. And and the types of people that came to the hotel are are instantly recognizable. The Rockefellers, uh, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison stayed at the hotel. I mean, anybody who was anyone at one point, if they visited Florida, they probably stayed at the Hotel Ormond. And that's certainly the case in the 1920s. We have the heirs to the Anheuser-Busch empire uh, stayed here in the winter season in 1929. They're listed here taking up almost an entire floor of rooms, including all of their staff. Uh, What's also interesting about this hotel is that I mentioned before, it's relatively self-sufficient. Flagler hired hundreds of people to do absolutely everything for these patrons. So when they visited, they really did nothing. There were tennis trainers, there were golf pros, there were folks that would take you out on bicycle rides, there were lifeguards, everything you can think of. And all of those people are actually listed in this registry. So that's one of the the interesting components uh, within this book. If I flip open to the uh, list of employees, like I said, there are about in the 1929 season, they had employed about 400 people. And here we have a list of uh, all of the employees, where they lived, what their position was, and also their salary for the winter season. So you can see you know, who made the most money. What also stands out, if you look at the addresses, is that most of these employees did not live in Florida. They were seasonal workers. They came down from the Northeast with a lot of these wealthy visitors, and they made their living during the wintertime working at the Hotel Ormond. What's also interesting, uh, if we flip over a couple of pages, 
talking about some of the uh, employees, there's a single page sheet here that shows employees who have worked for the hotel the longest, uh, at least 10 years or more. And if we look down the list, a few have worked here about 30, almost 40 years. In fact, here's a, a gentleman who worked for the hotel when it opened in 1888. Uh, and again, doesn't live in Florida, but came down every single season. So you can see there's some loyalty uh, amongst the employees. If we flip over, again, this is, has so much information and, and everything one would need to operate the hotel. Here we have the safe combination code. <laughs> for the upstairs vault, downstairs vault, uh, in the bookkeeper's office. We even have the cost of transporting the automobiles from the railroad. Um, now, remember, too, that Ormond and Daytona beaches are known as the birthplace of speed. A lot of land speed records were recorded uh, just outside of the hotel. So all of these famous racers often stayed at the hotel. Also included in these books, we have room rates. So we're looking at 1928, 1929. Uh, it was about $9 for a single room to stay there per night, and that included running water and electricity inside your room. Of course, the rates went up to about $25, $26 for the largest staterooms. Then in 1932, we see those price actually uh, change a little bit. By 32, the price had, had gone down to about $7 for a single room. Now, did that have something to do with the stock market crash? That's absolutely right. So by looking at these two books, we get a really interesting perspective on how the stock market crash affected something like a hotel in, in Florida, one of these grand hotels in Florida. Like I said, the the rate changes are actually not reflected in the type transcript or the bound volume of this book. They're written into the margins, meaning that that was probably an impromptu change based on the level of attendance during that season. Why are documents like this of particular use for researchers today? Well, as we were just talking about, so someone studying economics and, and the impacts of uh, cultural impacts on the uh, wealthiest individuals in America and those who serve them, a lot of the uh, the 400 or so employees, that number was slashed by 1932. They did not have the same number of employees because they didn't have the same number of people attending the hotels. They simply didn't have the money. You know, we're getting into the Great Depression era. But what's also interesting, I, I mentioned the list of employees who worked in, and these are folks who were not the wealthiest individuals in America, but they were visiting Florida every year to work at the hotels. We have a list of what they made. We knew exactly where they lived. This is great for genealogists and those doing family history. We can track down where uh, people's relatives lived and worked during the late 1920s and early 1930s. Interesting. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Yeah, if I This is Florida Frontiers. The use of buckshot played an important role in the Seminole Indian War. Quentin Murray, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has this report. I traveled to the Museum of Seminole County History. There, I was fascinated by an object on display in their Seminole Wars exhibit. It is a small metal ball, not unlike a bearing ball that has been damaged and weathered over time. It was the ammunition used during the Second Seminole War this ammunition would come to be known as buckshot. I sat down with Dr. Barbara Gannon from the University of Central Florida to learn more about this artifact. Well, the key is you use buckshot because a musket, a smoothbore musket, doesn't have a ride range. You use buckshot because the idea is for it to inflict a lot of damage. It has a shock factor because the buckshot goes in different directions. So the ball might go in one direction, but then the buckshot scatters, and the idea is you either shock people 
Or you may not kill them because uh, buckshot has a slower velocity than the regular shot. But you'll certainly damage them. And you'll discourage them from attacking you. Or if they attack you and you injure a lot of them, they'll have to retreat. The use of buckshot during the Second Seminole War would create physical trauma that would have a lasting impact. Yes, I mean, it would be. Um, if, if people come to you at a block, it creates more woundings, though, than deaths. And it's really a matter of velocity. They did tests on it to see what the downside of buckshot is. And when a bullet goes slower, it causes less damage. It can't go right through you or break bone. So it's more likely to cause non-death injuries. But that is an advantage if all you want to do is discourage people from attacking your fort. When you injure someone too, someone else has to pull them off the field. And that's two people you've taken away. Furthermore, this physical trauma would be accompanied by widespread illness. What's interesting about most campaigns like that is battlefields are kind of your smallest problem because you're in this environment with a lot of disease. If you looked back at American soldiers of this time period and you could even poll them or even just looked at the statistics, your biggest problem is disease on and off the battlefield because that's what's going to kill you mostly. Not only did the buckshot have serious physical consequences, but we should also imagine the psychological factors. Well, I would say you would use it in Florida and in the kind of campaigning you did here with a lot of trees and such because you don't have a wide or long field of vision. So you would use it in scenarios where it's not like a European open field battle where you're fighting simultaneously against an enemy you can see coming from far away. You can't see the enemy coming because it's because of the overgrowth. You would use it to try to discourage people who were closer to you and you would fire on them and cause more damage. You might as well do that since the nature of the terrain is there's not much clear terrain to have a heads-up battle. We have to understand that the Seminole Indians also use buckshot, but their tactics differed from the U.S. military. Well, the U.S., as I said, you're basically this is close order fighting. Uh, you're not planning because you're not going to be very effective from far away. So the tactic of the Americans would be, and this would be a primarily defensive, so that if the Native Americans came near them, they would either kill them, wound them, or at least scare them and send them away. The Native Americans, I'm sure, as they usually do, try to avoid heads-up fights with American soldiers. They will always do this until they outnumber them, and there's very rare conditions where they do that. So most Native Americans try to fight a ambush or running battle. They don't try to meet American troops face-to-face -face or straight up. Dr. Gannon tells me a lasting impact that the buckshot would have on the battlefield. The first thing they'll do is they'll have a percussion cap, which means you just put the cap in place and it fires that way. There's just a cap that creates the spark. The next real step will be when you go from smooth bores to rifled muskets, when they figure out how to make ammunition that can expand to embrace the grooves on a rifled musket barrel. And that way, they'll be more accurate and you can hit people from much further away. That's the Civil War rifle, which can hit someone, you know, two, 300 yards. This is only really good at 50, maybe 100 yards because of the fact it's smooth bore. 
It doesn't have rifle grooves to make the bullet go in a tight spiral and be more accurate. Sometimes, like the American Army might have gotten them from an armory, but you sometimes people used to make them themselves. They probably got it from an armory. There are armories like in Springfield, and eventually there'll be an armory in Harper's Ferry. Uh, that's why they had John Brown attacked Harper's Ferry, because there was an arsenal there. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Quentin Murray, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can also watch the television series version of Florida Frontiers. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.